Right now, there are a lot of dedicated social studies teachers who feel like they're damned if they do and damned if they don't. Each classroom subject has a separate content and a purpose. The all-around education provided by the American system allows each subject to impart invaluable skills as well as content knowledge, even if the students only seem to remember a fraction of it. A social studies teacher's purpose is to explain the context of our content. We take pride in being able to distill the complex into something that is understandable and digestible for our students' grade level. For history teachers, there is an assumption that our content is static and unmoving. After all, what we teach is the past. It has already happened. As humanity changes, however, our understanding of the past changes. Sometimes this is because new information has been uncovered. Other times it's because we have evolved in our understanding of where we are at as a people. The concept of critical race theory has seeped into America's culture wars. The concept, which is typically taught in advanced college courses, suggests that racism remains alive and well in our country, and many of the reasons that minority communities are so far behind is because of ongoing systemic racism. My department talked extensively going into the year about whether we would be challenged by students regarding the issue. While each of us were convinced that we don't teach critical race theory, we do go quite in-depth into how Reconstruction managed to reinvent many of the conditions inherent to Southern slavery. For the past four years, I have watched some of the smartest kids in my school, including a few Ivy Leaguers, fail Louisiana's literacy test, which served as a litmus test for an individual's right to vote. The test could afford to be so difficult because you were only required to take it if you couldn't prove that you had an elementary education. Since all of Louisiana's white residents went to school, none of them had to take the timed test, where one mistake meant disenfranchisement. The statement that Reconstruction served to reinvent slave roles can be backed up with facts and modern-day reasoning. It can be construed by those that wish to as revisionist history, and once we're there, we can begin to have a discussion about critical race theory. Many individuals have a hard time defining CRT, which again is a really high-level college concept. To a vocal minority, CRT counts as anything that makes white people feel bad about their place in the country. Some states are backing their citizens over their teachers on this. Johnson County, North Carolina, recently passed a school board ordinance that allows for teachers to be disciplined or fired if they undermine the nation's foundational documents or fail to recognize or present all people who contributed to American society as, quote, reformists, innovators, and heroes to our culture. There is a lot of danger in that statement to the history department of all Johnson County schools. Take Thomas Jefferson, for instance. His voice was the single largest influence on the Declaration of Independence. He was the third president and the first anti-federalist slash conservative to hold the Oval Office. He was also a slave owner, who went a step further than many of the other founding fathers. Namely, he had sexual relations with some of those slaves, particularly Sally Hemings. Our current understanding of power imbalances has led to the downfall of some of our society's most rich and powerful.
men and women, but particularly men, who had been able to force individuals to do what they wanted based upon the position that they held. There is no greater power imbalance than owner and slave. From this relationship, which started for her at age 16, Sally birthed six kids fathered by the future president. This, plus his status as a slave owner, something common among most of the founding fathers, changes the entire context of what may be Jefferson's most important sentence ever written. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. Does talking about an affair that is detailed as fact on the Monticello website, the online wing of the Thomas Jefferson Foundation, whose mission is to both preserve and educate future generations about the nation's third president? Am I failing to recognize a person who contributed to American society as a hero to our culture if I reveal the sins of the man? It is highly unlikely that anyone, even in North Carolina, is going to be fired because they reveal that Thomas Jefferson slept with his slave. But where the line is can be really difficult to say. America is not perfect, and like all nations, doesn't have a pleasant history. My hope is for all Americans to learn their nation's past and decide to work to make its future better. You can still love your country and admit that it has made mistakes. I can't think of one relationship anywhere in the world that operates under a requirement that one never makes a mistake. This brings me to the subject at hand. Germany committed perhaps the worst atrocity in the history of man. I say perhaps to allow some future possibilities in there. For instance, one theory as to why the Neanderthal died out was because us Homo sapiens successfully murdered them all in what would be the world's first genocide. The sheer numbers involved in the Holocaust defy comprehension. Some teachers, that are better than me, have collected pop tabs for every victim in the Holocaust. Quickly, the bags of tiny tabs filled entire rooms. Everyone who walks through the National Holocaust Museum has different moments where what happened hits them. For many, it's the room full of the shoes of victims. For others, it's the opportunity to stand in an actual rail car that transported prisoners to the camps. When one thinks about six million lives lost, it is nearly impossible for the human mind to comprehend. When it is put into proper context, the tragedy only grows in stature. Prior to Germany's efforts, it is estimated that there were 16.6 million Jews worldwide, with 9.5 million residing in Europe. That means that Hitler's policies resulted in the death of two out of every three European Jew and 37% of the entire world's population. He was nearly successful in his efforts to eradicate the ancestors of the world's oldest Western faith. Germany doesn't hide from this fact. Instead, they focus on it. When I had my first German exchange student in class, I was curious and asked them to describe Holocaust education in their home country. Hearing the answer has allowed me to share with freshman students who regularly voice the question over how Germany teaches this tragic event. Lars Rensmann is a German educator who teaches political science at the University of Munich. 
he points out that Germany mandates the teaching of the Holocaust, and that most students have visited at least one preserved Holocaust camp or national museum, of which Germany has more than any other nation. This jived with what my German exchange student told me. Still, there are shortcomings. Rensman mentions that Germans don't invest as much time studying history as others do, but all students in Germany at least must confront their nation's past. It is a core pillar of their education system. The International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance boils down the significance of quality Holocaust education. Bear with me while I summarize their justifications, which include an understanding that genocide is a process rather than a spontaneous sudden event. Additionally, it is a study that illustrates the roles of varying factors in the disintegration of democratic values and human rights. It provides a reminder that decisions have consequences. It also allows learners to more critically interpret viewpoints that may be used for manipulation. It challenges manifestations of prejudice, stereotyping, xenophobia, and racism. Lastly, the Alliance reminds us that the commemoration for the victims of this tragic event helps learners build the necessary understanding to engage with the emotional labor that forms a part of studying sensitive or traumatic history. The Holocaust is a part of human history. It is imperative right now, as the surviving generation passes from this earth, that we never forget the tragedy that happened due to humanity's actions. This is episode 5 in our series on Adolf Hitler. The Holocaust, Hitler's War Against the Jews. Although our series is focused on Adolf Hitler, we're going to approach this talk from a victim standpoint rather than the perpetrator perspective. The structure of this discussion will follow the format of the way I teach the Holocaust with my students. First, we'll entrust the listener with a purpose. Secondly, we'll bust some common myths and misconceptions. Then, we'll detail the phases of the Holocaust. And finally, we'll attempt to put it all in context the most important job that us history teachers have. My Holocaust professor at Indiana University offered up two challenges to his students. The first was to deny the denialists. Disturbingly, there are still individuals out there who continue to deny the existence of the Holocaust. Every once in a while, they'll make a public appearance. One of the more famous instances of this involved actor Mel Gibson. Although he has claimed to not be a denialist, some of his drunken statements that were caught on tape suggest that he may believe what his father was proud of saying out loud, that the Holocaust never happened. Twenty-five European countries have joined Israel in having laws that criminalize the act of Holocaust denial. Iran's former president, Mohammed Ahmadinejad, had to secure special permission to travel to host nation Germany for the World Cup as he had not only denied the Holocaust, but had offered a monetary award for anybody who could successfully prove it. It doesn't matter what the monetary amount of the prize is, 
it's impossible to prove the opposite of reality. The Germans weren't interested in hiding their actions. They were proud of their actions. There are countless testimonials to the events of the Holocaust, including survivor testimony, such as the 23rd Psalm, testimony from the victims, such as Anne Frank's diary, confessions of the perpetrators, including the Nuremberg trials, and first-hand testimony from the liberators. We have identified the victims and can match the names of those that perished up against the Nazis' own records. We know where most of the mass graves are. We have turned the death camps into memorials, and we can both see and touch some of the most insane aspects of the Holocaust. Take, for instance, the story of Ilse Koch, the bitch of Butchenward. She was the wife of the commandant of the Nazi death camp. Beyond the wife of a powerful man, she was a self-proclaimed Nazi, having joined long before she met her husband. She also served as an SS overseer at the camp, which was one of the jobs that the normally traditionalist Nazis thought were appropriate for women. The Jewish Virtual Library details why Koch remains famous well beyond her death, telling us that she was especially fond of riding her horse through the camp, whipping any prisoner who attracted her attention. Her hobby was collecting lampshades, book covers, and gloves made from the skins of specially murdered concentration camp inmates and shrunken human skulls. Ilse Coach would specially select prisoners with distinctive tattoos on her rides around the camp. Her taste for collecting lampshades made from the tattooed skins was described by a witness at the Nuremberg trials after the war. The finished product, i.e. tattooed skin detached from corpses, were turned over to Coach's wife, who had them fashioned into lampshades and other ornamental household articles. That's right. There was a woman who liked to read books, whose covers were made out of the remains of humans, while sitting next to lampshades which were made out of the skin of victims that she had personally chosen. The Jewish Virtual Library continues, In the book Sidelights on the Coach Affair by Stephen Heyman, the author pointed out that the disgusting detail that the coaches had lampshades made from human skin did not distinguish them from the other SS officers. They all had similar artworks made for their families' homes. It is more interesting that Frau Koch had a lady's handbag made out of the same material. She was just as proud of it as a South Sea Island woman would have been about her cannibal trophies. The point here is that we don't just have stories. We have the literal evidence. So much evidence of it that you would have to be absolutely insane to not believe it. Every angle is covered. Perhaps that's what allows denialists to continue to deny. Remember that Hitler pointed out in the big lie that even when faced with incontrovertible evidence, some remnant of the lie always remains. I have yet to meet a denialist in person, but I watched a fellow teacher, a strong man in his 60s, cry when confessing to me after an adult ed lesson on the subject that his mother was a denialist. The second challenge provided by my professor was to not let one man take responsibility for what was everyone's fault. 
it is too easy and convenient to merely blame Hitler for the Holocaust. For the thousands of individuals who risked everything to stop the Holocaust, there were millions more that were actively participating in it. There were even more than that that ignored it, showcasing a level of ambivalence for human life that ought to terrify us. Don't get me wrong, there are degrees of evil within this spectrum, but everyone that failed to act against the Holocaust bears some level of guilt over the event. The Nazis and their fear are the top perpetrators of this sinister and twisted blame game. Just blaming Hitler, though, allows Joseph Mengele to avoid the notoriety and shame for his actions. A doctor by trade, Mengele became a medical officer first in 1943, before being assigned to Auschwitz after two years of service. Besides operating the gas chamber that ended countless lives, Mengele took the opportunity to use prisoners for human experimentation, proving a hollowness in his taking of the Hippocratic Oath, which proclaims that a doctor's duty is to first do no harm. Mengele dutifully conducted experiments that appear to have been designed to first and foremost inflict pain. Mengele was particularly interested in twins. He would separate the two victims and then proceed to torture one in order to see if their twin could feel the pain of their sibling. He also sought to discover ways to produce more twins, so that the German people could grow their population more rapidly. In just one day, Mengele killed off 14 sets of twins. If one succumbed to whatever experiment he was performing at the moment, he would kill off the remaining sibling so that the autopsy had a scientific control to compare to. Mengele is so evil that the 20th century X-Men franchise utilized him in the creation of Magneto's backstory. After all, only evil could create evil. Showcasing the typical lack of guilt for Nazi actions, Mengele earned the nickname Angel of Death for his perfectly clean white lab coat and his sunny disposition as he liked to whistle while selecting which inmates would be the next to die horrifically. He was just one of the death camp's 8,400 workers who worked together systematically to murder 1.1 million out of the 1.3 million forced residents of Auschwitz. The nations that Hitler accumulated as part of his German Anschultz policy all quickly flipped on their fellow citizens. When the fear had lived in Vienna, it had been the kindness of Vienna's Jewish shopkeepers that had allowed him to scrape together his meager existence. In 1938, Austria was home to 190,000 Jewish residents, roughly 3% of that nation's total population. There were 440 synagogues and 34 different districts in which Jews practiced their faith. At this point in time, they had called Austria their home for more than 800 years far from the outsiders that Nazis had alleged they were. By 1942, it's believed that there were only 2,000 to 5,000 Austrian Jews remaining within the country. Nazi records report that over the next three years, they would come in contact with at least 2,000 of the initial survivors of the first wave of the Holocaust. This blindingly quick liquidation of the population indicates that the local population was more than just a willing participant. They were eager for bloodshed. 
They, the Czechs, the Poles, and the residents of Vichy, France, all deserve a share of the blame that is typically thrust only upon Hitler's shoulders. There are other levels of blame. Allied nations such as the United States, Great Britain, and the USSR ultimately put a stop to the Holocaust. That, however, doesn't mean that they are blameless. Collectively, the Allied nations ignored the genocide for far too long. Hitler's policies, beginning with discrimination as well as euthanasia and forced castration, drew worldwide press attention. The New York Times ran 1,200 stories about the Holocaust. But even they can fall short when we look at it retrospectively. Of those 1,200 stories, only 26 were on the front page. In fact, historian David Wyman lumps a lion's share of blame on the New York Times, claiming that no other paper was in a better position to shine a necessary light on what was happening in Europe. But they fell short due to individual decision-makers and a belief in maintaining the appearance of objectivity as well as a healthy profit margin. The U.S. government surely didn't do enough to end the suffering in the camps that they knew about. This decision to do the minimum was purposefully strategic. The highest levels of the military regularly rejected requests from the World Jewish Congress and the War Refugee Board to bomb concentration camp gas chambers, or at the very minimum, the railway lines that brought victims to the prisons. Depending upon the request, the military claimed either that their bombers weren't accurate enough for the task, or that their planes were already too busy with other mission objectives that took priority. In reality, they greatly feared the propaganda gift that an accidental bombing of a Camp Barrack would give to the Germans. This strategic decision to prioritize ending the war as quickly as possible allowed the Nazis to continue bringing new victims to the death camps right until the very end. Faced with the realization that Hitler could only win one of his two wars, he chose to prioritize the eradication of the Jewish people over the preservation of his Germans. America did free camps that weren't out of their way. The 42nd Rainbow Division were the liberators of Dachau. One of the most interesting pieces of evidence for the Holocaust comes in the form of what is known as liberator's testimony. Soldiers of all ranks weren't properly prepared for the sights of thousands of walking skeletons when they broke down the barbed wire to enter the camps. I've read a number of pieces of Liberator testimony, and one of the most shocking things is how many of them start their forward exactly the way that Holocaust survivors do. It typically involves an apology from the author, who then expresses a desire to rid themselves, sometimes 30 to 40 years after the war, of the near nightly visions of the horrors that they witnessed. The hope is that putting the story to page will offer some sort of catharsis to their mind and soul. The History Channel weaves together a number of the 42nd's experiences to tell us, quote, When the American GIs entered the concentration camp, they found piles of naked corpses. Their skin stretched tight across impossibly malnourished bodies. In interview after interview, the soldiers described the dead bodies being stacked like cordwood a metaphor that unintentionally robbed the fallen prisoners of their remaining humanity. 
but for the soldiers to think of those bodies as fully human at that moment would have been too much to bear, end quote. Professor John McManus tells us that, quote, everywhere you turned was just this horror of bodies and people near death or in a state of complete decrepitude that you couldn't even process it. In one of the Liberator's testimonies that I have my students read, a soldier describes bonding with a malnourished Muslim over a small piece of chocolate during a quiet moment during which the soldier had thought he had escaped the horrors laid out in front of his eyes. The guilt that that soldier felt comes across clearly in his retelling of the moment. Unable to speak to the man in his language or to his experiences, the soldier experienced a desperate desire to aid and understand, but he lacked the capability to do either. When he wrote about the experience 30 years later, he still lacked the capacity to understand. Could we have done more? Absolutely. But there were those among us that not only didn't summon enough courage for the moment, instead these individuals lamented that they couldn't collaborate. Take, for instance, Henry Ford. As the leading innovator of the assembly line and the patriarch of Ford Motor Company, Ford had a megaphone at least as large as the New York Times. A close friend of Ford wrote in his private diary describing a camping trip in 1919 during which Ford attributes all evil to Jews or to the Jewish capitalists. The Jews caused the war, he writes. The Jews caused the outbreak of thieving and robbery all over the country. The Jews caused the inefficiency of the Navy. These thoughts were far from private. In 1920, the newspaper that Ford purchased began publishing a series of articles which claimed a vast Jewish conspiracy was infecting America. More than half a million copies were sent across and displayed in all of Ford's Motor Company's holdings. Clearly, Germany never had a monopoly on anti-Semitism. Professor of Judaic Studies, Hassad Dinier, even reveals that in 1920, a rising Adolf Hitler was, quote, inspired by Ford's writings. Ford is even personally mentioned in Mein Kampf, and the Fuhrer granted him the highest honor they could when they made him the first American recipient of the Grand Cross of the Supreme Order of the German Eagle in 1938. The Detroit Jewish News published an article entitled, It's Time to Truly Face the Hatred of Henry Ford, in which the paper writes that there is no way to know how many Jews, Roma, gays, and other civilians perished at the hands of the Nazi regime as a result of Henry Ford's hatred. But a number in the tens of thousands, if not the hundreds of thousands, would be a conservative estimate. Henry Ford was an originator in his field, but in the industry of hatred he was far from alone. Millions of Americans and Brits shared his viewpoints. Likewise, collaborator and complicit are two words that come before that of liberator when one talks about the Soviet Union and the Holocaust. Russian dictators Joseph Stalin and Vladimir Putin have both tried to push the liberator narrative as a form of revisionist history. Stalin regularly pointed out to his critics that it was the Red Army that liberated Auschwitz. The camp, however, easily could have been liberated six months earlier, 
at which point the Soviets were a mere 200 kilometers away when the offensive stalled. Late in the war, the Germans once offered the lives of one million Jews for 10,000 British trucks. Now, there are a number of logistical reasons that you shouldn't hand over 10,000 trucks to your enemy in the midst of a conflict. But the reason that the British diplomat gave was not one of those reasons. Given the opportunity to save one million souls, the British rejected the deal and replied, What would we do with one million Jews? Commodification of life is one of the most dangerous things that can happen in this world. Something becomes commodified when it is transformed into a commodity, or something to trade. To the Germans, the Jews were animals, tools, currency, playthings. But they weren't human. They used them as their toys until they were no longer fun or of use to them. Then they discarded them any way they could. The British didn't reject the offered deal because it was absurd to consider trading in flesh and blood. They rejected it because they didn't see enough of a return value for the investment. One of the most important lessons of the Holocaust comes from this very moment. When we forget that people are people, and not currency for our own benefit, we all lose a little bit of what we call humanity. We collectively were all responsible for what happened. When we both forgive and forget the past, we risk future generations misunderstanding the events that became before them. A recent study by the Conference on Jewish Material Claims Against Germany surveyed 1,000 Austrians. They found that 56% did not know the 6 million Jews were murdered in the Holocaust. 12% believed that less than 100,000 individuals died during the Holocaust. As the respondents declined in age, their knowledge sunk even further. Today, right-wing authoritarians in Poland and Hungary have come to power partly due to their bigoted viewpoints. In power, they have thrown doubts into their country's responsibility for the past. In 2018, the Polish president criminalized all statements that link Poland to the Holocaust. If the law had survived the courts, one could have been thrown in jail for writing the simple statement of Auschwitz, Poland's largest death camp. Israel's education minister, Nafali Bennett, rallied against the law, pointing out that the blood of Polish Jews cries from the ground and no law will silence it. Polish Jews make up 3 million of the more than 6 million victims of Hitler's Holocaust. One can't achieve that level of proficiency without cooperation from the local population. George Lusick Saltzman is the survivor's testimony that I rely on for my class. One of the many disturbing and heartbreaking stories encapsulated in the book, The 23rd Psalm, serves to ground the Holocaust in reality for my students. The story begins when Lusik sees one of his childhood friends after two years of surviving life behind the wire. The encounter happened while his former friend was walking to school, which deftly serves to point out that these camps weren't hidden. They were in plain sight, right among the people to see, 
smell, and witness. Lusick's friend's reaction was striking to him, myself, and my students when they read it for the first time. Lusick, you're still alive, was all that was said. Not, thank God you're still alive. Not, oh my goodness, there's been a mistake, what can I do to help you, Lusick? No, it was just, you're still alive. Huh, that's interesting. Before he walked away to class without another thought for his former friend. Anti-Semitism has deep roots that go back to the beginning of the Jewish people. In Europe, that anti-Semitism can be traced back to the Jews being handed the role of moneylenders during the Middle Ages, as well as blatant racism that emanated from the pulpits of Christian churches. I go into significant depth on the role that Christianity played in anti-Semitism on the first episode in our series on the Spanish Inquisition. If you're interested in that topic, I would encourage you to give it a listen. This anti-Semitic Christian tradition was strong in Germany, as Martin Luther was a known avid anti-Semite. Like Henry Ford, Luther is also name-dropped in Mein Kampf. Among Luther's many questionable quotes is, quote, No Christians that next to the devil thou hast no enemy more cruel, more venomous, and violent than a true Jew. Not that we are looking for one, but in 1944, Reverend William Ralph Inge said, If we wish to find a scapegoat on whose shoulders we may lay the miseries which Germany has brought upon the world, I am more and more convinced that the worst evil genius of that country is not Hitler or Bismarck or Frederick the Great, but Martin Luther. The World War I stab-in-the-back theory reopened all of the open wounds that had festered in Germany for generations. Hitler's pushing of big lies tapped into a deep pool of anti-Semitism that had already been there. This paved the way for the Holocaust, but the genocide didn't happen immediately upon the ascension of Adolf Hitler. Although it's a myth, the boiling frog syndrome is one way to understand the necessity of implementing what became known as the final solution in phases. The Nazis gradually turned up the level of discrimination, and individuals adjusted to it over time. By the point of which concentration camps had been converted into death camps, it was too late for anyone to jump out of the water. Another way of understanding the gradualization of the Holocaust is through the immortal words of Lutheran pastor Martin Niemöller, a man that we discussed in the third episode of this series. After spending time in a concentration camp, Niemöller wrote the following, First, they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. We'll generalize the Holocaust as consisting of four distinct phases. First came discrimination, which was followed by either ghettoization and or death squads. The third phase involved labor camps, and the final phase were the infamous death camps. 
Although the history of discrimination against Jews in Europe and Germany was around long before this time period, we'll begin our analysis in the year of 1935, which happened to be roughly a year and a half after the Reichstag fire had allowed for the passing of the Enabling Act and the legitimization of Adolf Hitler's dictatorship. De jure segregation in the form of discriminatory laws were quick to follow. What is commonly known today as the Nuremberg Laws were actually two laws passed through the halls of Berlin. The first of the two, the Reich Citizenship Law, attempted to define a Jew by racial heritage, rather than religious practice or physical appearance. Jewish citizens had arrived in Germany as early as the 4th century, which was a time period during which the Roman Empire ruled the area. Jewish communities were thriving in the 8th century. That somewhat ceased after Germany became part of the newly formed Holy Roman Empire. During the 16th century Reformation, Martin Luther and other Christian church fathers likened the area's Jews as being more of Judas, the betrayal, than Jesus, their Jewish Lord and Savior. This long history of life within the German borders meant that German Jews were difficult to identify, particularly those who had stopped practicing the Jewish faith. The Reich Citizenship Law rejected the notion that a person's Jewishness could be identified by their faith or cultural practices. It replaced that notion with a pseudo-scientific definition of who was and wasn't Jewish. It's worthwhile to note here that Adolf himself had serious questions about whether his own blood violated this law, as it was never clear who his grandfather was. We examined that aspect of his life in the first episode of this series. The second of the two Nuremberg Laws was named the Law for the Protection of German Blood and German Honor. With the first law defining Jews, this second law began to punish them. Marriage as well as sexual relations between Jews and non-German Jews became prohibited. Further, separating Jews from their brethren was the inclusion of an article that forbade Jews from flying the German national flag, but simultaneously protected their rights to display Jewish colors and flags. This served to emphasize that they belonged to some sort of Jewish world state rather than the German one. Germans generally accepted these laws, further distancing the Jewish citizens from their neighbors. Those that spoke up faced discrimination from Hitler's SA, his SS stormtroopers, and the Gestapo, his official secret police. These plain-clothed policemen who loved to utilize torture to exact confessions were given the mission to investigate and combat any and all threats to the state. After the Reichstag fire had allowed for the rounding up of all communists, Heinrich Himmler strategically aimed the Gestapo at Germany's Jews. The secret police's specialized Jewish departments, or Judiferat, investigated all cases of race defilement as called for under the Nuremberg Laws. They were also put in charge of Jewish emigration. As a positive, the Gestapo helped to speed up and coordinate many of the difficulties that are inherent to immigration. Unfortunately, the negatives easily outweighed the benefits in 1934, as the Gestapo did everything within their power to make sure that the Jewish migrants' financial possessions stay in Germany in the hands of the Nazi state. 
they were only allowed to leave with the equivalent of four dollars. There was pushback, as no Jewish citizen could have appreciated the changes that were being legally mandated. German foreign official Ernst von Roth was gunned down by Herschel Gritzepan, a 17-year-old Polish Jew who was seeking revenge for the deportation of his family from Germany. 12,000 Polish Jews had been arrested, stripped of their property, and herded aboard trains headed from Germany to their homeland as part of the roundup. They found no refuge when they reached Poland, which refused to admit them. The Polish Red Cross embraced them and led them to their refugee camps. But like most resettlement camps, the conditions were awful. One British woman working the camp stated that I found thousands crowded together in pigsties. The old, the sick, and children herded together in the most inhumane conditions. Some actually tried to escape back to Germany and were shot. The assassination happened in Paris and was intended to strike down the German ambassador to France. Herschel was presented instead to von Roth on the premise that he had an important package to deliver. Upon entrance to the office, however, Gritzelpan allegedly shouted while pulling out his gun, You're a filthy borch. In the name of the 12,000 persecuted Jews, here is the document. Like most efforts to push back against the Nazis, the assault only served to hasten the systemic assault. The death provided political cover for a German crackdown that went far beyond discrimination. That crackdown event became known as Kristallnacht, or the Night of Broken Glass. Violent mobs emerged across Germany, Austria, and the Sudetenland, all of which were now controlled by Hitler's Nazis. Orders from the Gestapo ensured that no police officers or firefighters emerged to halt that night's violence. More than 7,500 Jewish-owned businesses, homes, and schools were pillaged and destroyed. These locations were easy to find due to the fact that German laws had forced Jews to identify themselves by visibly hanging the Star of David on their residences and businesses. Ninety-one Jewish individuals were murdered that night, and a staggering 30,000 were rounded up and sent off to concentration camps. 267 synagogues, the center of Jewish worship, were razed to the ground. This violence happened in virtually every portion of Nazi territory, displaying a disturbing level of coordination that could have only come via the central government. Because the violence was nationwide, there was nowhere for Jews to turn to. Deprived of their businesses' revenue and their personal wealth, it soon became impossible to relocate their families. Those that did typically headed to Poland, which was both geographically and culturally close to the life that they were used to. Many of my students hear about this phase of discrimination and either respond that they would fight back or simply move really far away. But life is rarely as simple as American teenagers make it out to be. Jewish history is literally full of stories of the suffering of their people at the hands of outsiders. My world history class begins to learn about this as early as the Egyptian enslavement of the Jews prior to Moses' arrival on this earth. 
We also talk about the Roman discrimination that results in the trial of Jesus of Nazareth and the diaspora that forced them to abandon their traditional home in the Middle East. We even provide testimony to the sacrificial deaths of the Jews at the hands of the Romans in the Colosseum and in the aftermath of Nero's great fire. This depressing storyline continues with pogroms by crusaders on their way to liberate the Holy Land during the Middle Ages. To be Jewish is in part to understand and survive discrimination. Many families in the 1930s believed that the discrimination that came with Hitler's Reich was just another phase, one that would pass, just as all the others had. Those that decided to leave had to make a difficult decision. Travel in the 1930s wasn't as easy as it is now. The decision to move from Germany to America was prohibitively expensive and meant that you had to permanently abandon your friends and family. You would have to start over in a new country with a new language with no friends or family to depend on. Worse, you had to start over with no financial means to your name as the Nazis confiscated all of your accumulated wealth on your way out. Those that did leave typically remained geographically close. In the 10 months after Kristallnacht, 115,000 Jews left German territory. 14,000 went as far as Shanghai. 27,370 came to America, which filled the entirety of the low U.S. quota. And tens of thousands went to Western European countries and Palestine. Those that fought were arrested or killed as there was no organization capable of delivering spontaneous rebellion. For those that sought safety in Poland, Belgium, and France, the Holocaust immediately followed them to their new home. The second phase of the Holocaust involved ghettoization and death squads. This was essentially an either-or situation. Poland was invaded on September 1, 1939. The first ghetto was created in Poland in October of that year. The term comes from the 16th century when the leaders of Venice, Italy forced that city's Jews to live in a specific quarter. Americans typically use the term as a slur, but it is common throughout European cities to still see the term ghetto on a street sign or map. The Nazis established 1,143 ghettos, with the majority of those being created in occupied eastern territories. The largest ghetto was the Warsaw Ghetto, which at one point had 400,000 Jewish residents crammed into 1.3 square miles. For comparison's sake, the city of Chicago has 11,783 per square mile, and Warsaw today averages 8,730 individuals per square mile. The Jewish population was required to cram 400,000 in a little more than a few square blocks. On average, this meant nine individuals living in one room. Ghettoization allowed for the Nazis to establish dominance and to locate members of the Jewish population, so that they then could move them onto the next phase of the final solution. In the ghettos, the Nazis were constructing the beginnings of an assembly line whose end product was death itself. 
Some ghettos only lasted a few days and served as nothing more than a roundup of the population. There were plenty of Jewish residents that refused to be herded and placed into Jewish quarters. The Einsatzgruppen were created to punish those that resisted moving. Einsatzgruppen simply means task force. And these groups were made up of Heinrich Himmler's SS soldiers. There were four separate task forces, generically named A, B, C, and D, that were created for the task of hunting down Jews living outside of the ghetto's confines. The task force numbers ranged from 400 to 1,000 at any point in time, and they attached themselves to invading armies that roamed outside of Germany's borders. Their primary task was to find and murder any and all Jews that were living outside of the ghettos. Once again, proving that the Holocaust was not only a Jewish tragedy, they were additionally handed lists of other agitators to be rounded up and purged. This included aristocrats, priests, government officials, business people, teachers, and physicians. Many of these kill lists had been prepared as much as three years earlier. After rounding up a significant number of their targets, the Einsatzgruppen would transfer them to secluded farm fields, forests, or remote schools. The individuals would be involuntarily coerced at gunpoint to dig their own graves. By September 8th, a week after the invasion of Poland, SS commanders were bragging in letters to the fear about killing at least 200 Poles per day. By September 27th, an Einsatzgruppen commander claimed that only 3% of the Polish upper classes remained alive. Such was the effectiveness of the kill squads. By the end of 1939, the Einsatzgruppen had killed 35,000. The task forces mimicked many of the euthanasia policies that had been put in place by the Nazis in Germany. For instance, individuals with mental illnesses were culled from the population. In 1941, the death squads were utilizing trucks equipped with mobile gas chambers. During the early portion of World War II, the Einsatzgruppen were used to keep Jewish citizens in fear. Jewish residents that were found out after curfew, or just in the wrong place at the wrong time, were murdered and had their bodies put on display in the ghetto to be viewed by the members of the ghetto. Heshesis Hapsovich took a photo of Jews being marched together out of the city of Kiev to the Baba Yar Ravine. The photo shows bodies that have been clearly placed strategically along the path of the planned march. The message was clear. Stay in the ghetto and follow the rules or risk your life in a deadly game with the professional death squads. The Einsatzgruppen were incredibly effective at their task. One-third of all Jewish Holocaust victims died as a result of shooting actions. However, the death squads were too slow and inefficient for the fear and their mission changed in 1941. When the truce with the Soviet Union ended in June of that year, the Einsatzgruppen were tasked with maximizing civilian deaths in the Union's territories. Their largest massacre occurred in Babi Yar, 
the aforementioned ravine outside of Kiev. Over the course of two days, Einsatzgruppen C murdered 33,771 Jews. These killings were indiscriminate, and like the rest of the Holocaust, included not only men, but women and children. Individuals were shot at the edge of the mass grave or forced into the pit to be shot via machine guns. If you managed to avoid the hail of gunfire, victims were asphyxiated from the mass of humanity piled on top of them. Waitman Bjorn wrote the work The Holocaust in Eastern Europe at the epicenter of the final solution. He states, Holocaust by bullets does not dominate our consciousness the same way as Auschwitz. However, it should. Among the most dramatic of the still photos that I show in class are of women who have already been forced to undress and remove all articles that could be repurposed for the benefit of the German war machine. Towards the front of the line are two mothers holding tight to their infant children. Lingering at the edge of the picture, with a space of about four people between her and the victim in front of her, is a woman that is clearly in her third trimester of pregnancy, struggling to keep up with the others. These pictures were not the work of a rogue journalist seeking to reveal the truth to the world. It was taken by the SS, their proof to send the fear as a sign of progress. Proof of the Holocaust is easy to find, as the Germans painstakingly recorded everything for their records. We even have the head of the Einsatzgruppen's 195 reports that condensed and consolidated all of the horrors that were perpetrated by the group. These included warnings about the psychological toll that the mission was having upon his soldiers. Israeli historian Yitzhak Arad edited the reports so that the educators would have access to the first-hand testimonies of the Nazi murders. It is a boring, bureaucratic read that showcases the complete lack of empathy that existed among the German soldiers. The following is from a report regarding Einsatzgruppen B's actions in eastern Belarus during October of 1941. Quote, in Borsov, another 83 persons were shot individually during the time of this report. They were seditious Jews, former NKGB agents and communist functionaries. Two large-scale actions were carried out by the platoon in Krupka and Schultzepain. 912 Jews were liquidated in the former and 822 in the latter. The Krupka district can now be considered free of Jews. The complete liquidation of all Jews in the two villages was deemed necessary in order to deprive the numerous Partisans and parachutists in these parts of any assistance which the Jews in particular had given most persistently. In Borush, during the time under report, a platoon of Einsatzgruppen 8 executed 418 people. Among them were rebellious Jews and persons who had shielded former Red Army soldiers or who had acted as spies for the Partisans. Some of those executed had committed anti-German agitation, conducting whisper campaigns and distributing leaflets. On October 8, 1941, the complete liquidation of the Jews in the Witzbeck ghetto began owing to the imminent danger of epidemics. The number of Jews who came under, quote, special treatment 
amounted to about 3,000, end quote. The Einsatzgruppen and ghettos showcased the second phase of the Holocaust, but that's not where it stopped. The remaining two sections of the Holocaust, or phases as we've discussed about it, are the labor concentration camps, and then finally the death camps. We have a lot more to talk about, but we're going to stop it here and finish next week with part two of the Holocaust, which completes our journey.